Good evening. Lovely, lovely, lovely to be with you. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but one of the most significant things about you is your relation to a man who lived almost 4,000, yes, 4,000 years ago. Your Abrahamic identity is one of the most important things about you. That's what we'll find in our passage from Galatians today. But be patient. Let me start by making the point that we must approach the words of Scripture with humility and patience. Humility and patience. This is because although they have continued to have authority over us, they were not written to us, these writings. They continue to have authority over us, but were not written to us. And we need humility to be open to learn. Humility not to impose upon them what we want them to tell us, but let them teach us. And patience in working with something written to others in context, which is so often so different to ours. Patience to respect what we read, not to give up when they don't seem immediately to give me what I want. Talk to me now. But patience to work with the text until the treasures that are for us are uncovered. This is particularly the case in the New Testament book, the centre of our present series, the book of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in the passage today, so grace and humility. If you've been following the series so far, you would have noticed that the heart of this rather breathless and hurried letter to the Galatians is an urgent concern about threats to the truth of the gospel. You hear the alarm right at the beginning. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul opens, I'm astonished, he writes, that you're so quickly deserving the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Then in the next chapter, while describing an important visit that Paul made to the other apostles in Jerusalem, where there was pressure from those who Paul calls false brethren, we find this, chapter 2, verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And finally, later, Paul recounting the time that he shirt-fronted none other than the apostle Peter, because, quote, I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, the gospel is the announcement of what God has done in, the, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how it's changed everything. Paul gives, I think, what could be counted as a brief summary in the opening words, verse 3 of chapter 1. I quote, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And just earlier, Paul had written that that God and Father had raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, they are indications of the gospel. Its truth is under threat in the churches of Galatia, which is centre to southern Turkey today. How? 
Is it under threat? Well, it's not what you'd expect. Here's where patience and humility comes in. I mean, today in the church, loosely defined, the truth of gospel is also under threat. Let me give some examples I've noticed. The truth of the gospel is under threat when the resurrection of Jesus is effectively denied, as it is in some Christian circles. The truth of the gospel is under threat when Jesus Christ is seen as primarily or purely a teacher and example of social justice, as it is in some Christian circles. The truth of the gospel is under threat, I guess, when the Christian gospel is aligned with a particular national movement, as it is in some parts of the world. The truth of the gospel is under threat when the divinity of our Lord is denied. And the truth of the gospel is under threat when it's understood exclusively as a gospel of inclusion without judgment, as it is in some Christian circles, including Anglican circles. I could go on. I could spend all evening teaching you different ways of denying the truth of the gospel. But I better not. In the churches of Galatia, as you've been hearing in this series, if you've been listening to it, the truth of gospel is under threat in a way we would never think of. It's under threat because Jewish believers in Jesus are insisting, by word or in Peter's case, actions, that non-Jewish believers, Gentile believers, must adopt some important aspects of Jewish life to truly belong to truly be righteous. If you want to be one of us in Christ, you must obey these key requirements of the law. By law, they mean in the law that God gave Moses, or the Torah, often it's called. And one of the key, though not the only inquirement in mind, was male circumcision. This may seem strange to us, but it was, it was so important to Jewish identity in the first century it became the way they talked about themselves opposed to the others, to the pagans. We see this in a passing remark in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 11, where we read this. He's writing to his Greek readers. Therefore, he says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. And that but, but that insistence, the insistence that the way into Jesus Christ was through the path of the Torah, or at least key requirements of it, was denying the truth of the gospel. And that's what's at stake in the churches of Galatia. And as we also saw last week, one of the key battlegrounds in this whole controversy was the figure of Abraham. The issue was who could rightly be described a member of Abraham's family, one of his descendants? This Abrahamic identity was central. Was it by obedience to the law? So the Gentiles have to behave like Jews to be truly descendants of Abraham? Or was it instead by trusting allegiance in the message of the, cru of the crucified and risen Jesus alone so the Gentiles could belong in their own right, as it were? Now, this focus on Abraham might seem at first very odd to us. Abraham is a figure of the late Bronze Age. He lived 
1,800 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. If my maths is right, that makes him nearly 4,000 years before us this evening. <coughs> but as we'll hear today, and especially next Sunday, your own Abrahamic identity is one of the most important things about you. Why was this a central battleground in the whole controversy? Why, why the figure of Abraham and his descendants? The reason is that Abraham is a key figure in the whole scriptural story. Back in Genesis 12, we see a world in which humans are scattered across the earth. They've lost the presence of God. They're living under a curse. And God chooses one man, Abraham, from the land we now call Iraq. And gives him the promises that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through him and through his descendants, his family. This is the beginning of God's move to reclaim a recalcitrant world. To be frank, it's hard to underestimate the significance of the promises of Abraham to the whole biblical story. It's a great engine that drives the rest of what follows. This means that the fight over Abraham is a fight over whether the gospel that Paul proclaims is truly rooted in the biblical story. It's a fight for the truth of the gospel. Paul could not ignore this question. Although the gospel of Jesus Christ is radical and changes everything, it's also... Oh boy. The climax, I'll say that again, although it is the gospel Paul proclaimed is radical and changes everything, it's also the climax of an existing story. It's not the start of a completely new story. The early Christians did not go around saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with anything you've heard about before. Forget the previous scriptures that you may have read, this is about a God you never heard of. No. They said the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. No, what they said, that what took place in Jesus Christ was, as our own creeds also continue to say, according to the scriptures. The question is how? Here's how Paul approaches the question, the question in chapter 3 of Galatians. Again, we saw it last week. He starts with the promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. All the nations or all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. As you heard last week, Paul remarkably understands these words from God as nothing less than the announcement of the gospel in advance to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations we bless through you. And Paul's point a little later there is that, as it says in Genesis 15, by the way, there's at least a number of reiterations of these promises, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22. That in chapter 15, as it says there, Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed God's promises, which is really the gospel. 
So, says Paul, those who, like Abraham, also believe the gospel are counted as righteous. They are Abraham's family and no circumcision or law in sight. But that's not the end of it. There is a law given to Moses, quite a bit of it. What about that? Isn't that a further development of the promise to Abraham, as Paul's opponents might say? Doesn't it then define who those um, who are truly members of Abraham's family more precisely? Although they never heard of railways back then, if they had, they might have said, look, surely the railway line from the promises to Abraham through Christ to us goes through the law, comes by Moses. Doesn't that must mean surely that if Gentiles want to be connected to the Abraham promises, they in effect, they've got to do the same. Must, they must in effect become like Jews to be the righteous. And that's the question that Paul is coming to grips with in the passage you heard read today. At last, you say, he's finally arrived at the set reading. I told you to be patient. In this text, Paul makes very clear that the promise to Abraham is not diverted through the law, but remains on its own track. The law is a siding. The track goes straight to Christ. The law does not play a defining role in identifying who is Abraham's family. It's only a loop line. <coughs> and he developed his argument in, in, a number, in a number, three steps, actually. The first is step one. You can't set aside a human solemn undertaking the word Paul uses is the word covenant. Neither does God. Verse 15. Step two. Paul takes God's promise in the form that he, we find it in Genesis 15, verse 6, where God says to Abraham, look at the sky, count the stars if you can, so shall your offspring be. That's the New International Version of Genesis 15, verse 6. To see what Paul does with that, we must need to know the word translated offspring is literally the word seed. Seed in the sense of offspring, progeny, family. And the word seed, like offspring, progeny, family, is a collective noun. It's a word noun that means includes many in it. The promise is to Abraham and to his seed and to his descendants. Now in step two, Paul takes that and emphasises that in the promise, the word is singular. Seed, he says, not and to seeds. So there can't be two, not two families, not two groups of descendants, only one to whom the promise is made. Now, the New International Version, in trying to be helpful, has unhelpfully added in the word person and people. But they're not there in the text, and so I'm going now, by magic, to remove them. What verse 16 says is this. The promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, but and to your seed, meaning one, who is Christ. The point is not about persons, but about seeds, offspring, descendants. There is only one family of Abraham to whom the promise is made, only one seed, and says Paul, that is Christ. Now this may sound strange to our ears, but we need to understand that Paul often uses the phrase Christ or the word Messiah, which is behind it, as also in a kind of collective word as well. Not just Christ purely as an individual, but Christ and those in him. Christ as a, as a corporate body as well. He is the family of Abraham personified. And you say, why, why is one so important? One offspring, or one seed, one family. Well, as you'll learn next week, when Roger takes up, the, up the, uh, the game. We're having a series of old, grey, bearded white men uh, at the moment in our Galatian series. When Roger does that, we'll, we'll see, learn, learn much more about this. But we can say this in the words of Galatians 3.28, which is the key passage for next week. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And then interestingly, Paul concludes this section, and if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Step three is to say that the law which came 430 years later after God's promise doesn't do away with the terms of God's covenant. The promise stands, verse 17. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. It is one or the other, by the way, as Paul writes in the next verse, verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on law, it no longer depends on the promise, but God gave his grace, in his grace gave open through a promise. Are you with me so far? I know it's not easy. Let me, let me just recap where we've got to. The question about who inherits the promise of Abraham is a very important one in showing that the gospel is according to the scriptures. Remember, Paul's gospel asserts that Gentiles in Christ are accounted as righteous, that is, they truly belong, without adopting the Jewish requirements of the law of Moses. Paul's argument is this, one, as with humans, God does not set aside a solemn undertaking. He keeps his contract. His promise. Two, so with God's solemn undertaking to Abraham and his one family or seed, that is those in Christ. Three, the coming of the law of Moses doesn't change it. That's Romans, that's Galatians 3, 15 to 18. But that still leaves a question in the air. Why was the law given to Moses then? At all? Now I'll be honest with you, Paul's answer is so densely packed, it isn't that easy to follow. I'll do what I can, brief, as briefly as I can. There, there are two things here, from verse 19 through 22. The first is, despite all that's been said, it would be completely wrong, says Paul, to say the law is opposed to God's promises. Now, the reason they're not opposed is they're not competitors. 
<coughs> they're not in the same space. As he puts it in verse 21, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. Plainly, it couldn't. Now, Paul didn't say he why it couldn't. But elsewhere, <coughs> he does say it's because the law was, quote, weakened by the flesh. So the problem is not the law, it's Israel, or the human being to whom it's given. They are too weak. In fact, if you read the sorry tale of Israel's reaction to the law with one after the other collapses, you see what Paul has in mind. Human sinfulness is the problem. That's why the law is not a competitor to the promise in giving life, because it wasn't a starter. That makes sense. But you still might say then, but why the law at all then? The law was only ever intended, writes Paul, as a temporary provision. That's, that's okay, that's easy. But a temporary provision to do what? This is where it gets interesting or confusing, depending upon your point of view. Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Temporarily, until the seed had come. You notice, by the way, the NIV has got seed with a capital S. Now, Paul did not write a capital S because capitals had not been invented when Paul wrote. But you see the point they're trying to make. Now, temporary until the seed comes, okay, that makes sense, but what does he mean it was added because of transgressions? What does that mean? Now, it sounds at first like he's saying it was added to prevent or reduce transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Surprisingly, that is not quite Paul's point at all. He's saying it was rather given to record transgressions or to show up sin as transgressions. In fact, in another place he says, you can't even have transgressions without law. Now, a few verses later, down in verse 22, I think he repeats in another way what he wrote in verse 19 in a different language. Listen to this, verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Scripture has locked up Torah, then, Scripture has locked up everything under sin. Now, that's an unusual way to put it. We'll hear more of what that means in the coming weeks when Paul develops the argument. What we can say now is this with certainty. This is a great warning to the Galatians not to go back. See, the Galatians are tempted to go back to the very situation in which Paul and his fellow Jews have been liberated from. They have been set free from it. The Galatians are running through the door going, no, don't go back there, that's the prison house, he says. That's where things are locked under sin. That's where, where transgressions are, are recorded against you. I think something like that is what Paul means when he says, added because of transgressions. 
The good news is that that was for a good purpose, and the good purpose is given in the second part of verse 22, the last two lines of, of, the, of, of the text in front of you. So that what was promised, locked up under sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Locked up so that it might finally be delivered to those to whom it was promised. Now, if you've got your NIV open before you, you'll notice an interesting footnote, K, which draws our attention to an interesting translation issue. Behind the words faith in Jesus Christ are the Greek words, literally, the faith of Jesus Christ. For those who have not benefited from modern education, that means it's a genitive. Others will not have a clue what I'm talking about because it's a figure of speech. But it's a genitive, an ownership word, faith of Jesus Christ. How do you translate that? It could mean faith in Jesus Christ. That's certainly possible. But it could also, and here this is my own inclination, mean Jesus Christ's faith, not our faith in him. You say, wait, 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 wait. what do you mean Jesus Christ's faith? Well, the word faith is the same word as faithfulness. Same, same word, faith, faith, all the same thing. And therefore it could mean the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's faithfulness. In which case, if that's what it means, you could translate that last sentence like this. So that what was promised being given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There's still human belief in this passage, by the way, and what you've heard is a rather odd doubling up. That is, the promise to Abraham is... Because of Jesus Christ's own faithfulness in giving himself to redeem us from this present evil age, now given to those who believe, be they Jew or be they Gentile. Without the latter, having to become the former. One family, just as God is one. And here's where you come in. That's the truth of the gospel to be defended. For you it means this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are an heir of God's promise to Abraham. Your identity, whatever your ethnic background, is that you are a descendant of Abraham and that the promises of life, the promises of redemption in the world given to him are now yours as well. He may have existed 3,900 years ago, but today your own Abrahamic identity is one of the most important things about you. You are included. More on how in the next weeks. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, that in a world that had gone far from you, you made promises to redeem it. Promises you gave to one man and also to his descendants. Awaken in us living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that these wonderful promises may also include us. In his name we pray.
Amen.